1: The Battle of Midway has gone down in history as a turning point in a Second World War. In June 1942, the US Navy outthought, outflanked, and overwhelmed the formidable Imperial Japanese forces. They destroyed Japan's first line carrier strength and their highly trained naval pilots, neither of which are easy assets to replace. But the question I've always been left with is how did the US find itself in this remarkable position? How was the Navy able to position itself in such a way as to gain that element of surprise and an incredible, almost unbelievable strategic advantage over the well trained, battle hardened Japanese? Well, I'm your host, James Rogers, and in order to dig deeper into this history than we've ever done before, I've invited Dr. Sarah Louise Miller onto the podcast. Sarah is an award-winning historian who has spent years researching the forgotten history of intelligence behind such victories. And so Sarah is the perfect person to help us explore the overlooked men and women of the intelligence branches who were pivotal, vital, to laying the foundations for this historic victory at Midway enjoy hi sarah welcome to the warfare podcast how are you doing today
2: good thank you thanks for having me
1: not a problem at all thanks for taking the time to come on i'm really eager to get started on today's topic the battle of midway so let's get stuck in but where to start sarah i know that one of japan's main goals during the second world war was to remove the United States as a power in the Pacific in order to gain territory in East Asia and the Southwest Pacific Islands and to ensure the US couldn't get that foothold it needed to attack the Japanese mainland. So perhaps we can start with explaining just how Midway was part of this.
2: Yes, Midway is this seemingly insignificant tiny gap of land in the middle of the vast Pacific Ocean, so it can be difficult to understand why anybody would have bothered with it. But it was actually pretty uh, significant strategically to the Americans and to the Japanese. So you've had this kind of blitzkrieg take place in the Pacific, Japanese version of blitzkrieg, and they've got Malaysia, Singapore, Dutch East Indies, the Philippines, and various islands in the Pacific, and they just keep going. And the point in Midway and tiny scraps of land like it are to give them strategically useful bases from which they can carry on land grabbing and expanding their territory. So uh, Midway is very much in that category. It's, it's essentially, it's a, a static aircraft carrier in a way. and It gives them a kind of base to launch and work from to carry on with their intended expansionism in the Pacific.
1: So it is literally Midway. It is midway between the United States and Japan.
2: Pretty much, yeah. It's uh, geographically speaking quite useful. Aircraft range meant that they couldn't cover entire distances in that region and they needed somewhere they could land and take off and refuel and things like that. So something bang in the middle of the Pacific is fairly useful in that way.
1: I mean, you're not wrong. And it seems to me to be like the logical next step after Pearl Harbor. You've shored up your own geographical reaches around Japan, you've taken certain Pacific islands to strengthen your position around there. Now you can start to take the fight to the US. Was that the point in taking Midway?
2: Yeah, yeah, it gives them somewhere they can go back at Hawaii with. So Hawaii, they managed to, you know, fend off the US Pacific fleet for a while. But I think Yamamoto was aware of the fact that it wasn't permanent and they needed to go after that fleet again to permanently knock it out in the Pacific as a threat. And Midway is positioned nicely to be able to go back to Hawaii and take out the rest of the Pacific fleet as a thorn in the Imperial Japanese Navy's side, really.
1: And really opening a weakness up of the US Navy. But do we think that this was ever an attempt to try and create a launch pad for an invasion of the US. I mean, we're not talking that, are we? We're thinking more about this is a chip in the broader game, a negotiating chip that could try and force a peace with the United States on on favourable terms with Japan?
2: Yeah, yeah. The idea is, um, I think actually at this point, Japan's more worried about Australia and India. It's trying to kind of get rid of places that are a problem with regard to its expansionism. So it's looking at Port Moresby at this point. And the idea in taking Midway is to kind of eliminate the US as a problem more than go after them and invade them.
1: Yes, Port Moresby was absolutely vital. We've actually had an episode on this on the podcast about that, I mean, almost Spartan battle of resistance that took place there. And it is an incredible history. And thank you for linking Midway into that, because it helps us look at this broader geographical and geopolitical picture of what is going on at the Pacific at this moment in time. But the US had a bit of a, a secret weapon up its sleeve at this point in time, didn't it? It
2: certainly did, yeah. It was listening clandestinely listening to Japanese communications, particularly those of the Imperial Japanese Navy. So the US has got kind of an intelligence machinery, an outfit, and part of that they've lost in losing the Philippines because there was a station there that was pretty critical in that kind of network that they've set up in the Pacific. And with the Philippines being taken, they've lost that station, but they still have FruPAC, which is Fleet Radio Unit Pacific in Hawaii, which is also known sometimes as Station Hypo. That's its kind of more common name. And FruMel, the Fleet Radio Unit Melbourne in Australia. And both of these stations are routinely, by this point, intercepting Japanese radio communications and co-breaking them, translating them, and then having usable intelligence from those conversations that they are e-wigging.
1: So they weren't completely blind and deaf to what was going on in the Pacific and the Japanese movements and the movements of the Japanese fleet. And they also had the Australian Coast Watchers, who were a section that were in occupied Japanese territory on the Pacific Islands. People like Jim Burrows, who were out there working with local forces to try and keep a watchful eye, literally just a few kilometres from where the Japanese are based to see when and where they were moving and to relay this back to headquarters. So, is it safe to say that the US had a, a pretty good comprehensive picture of what was going on at this moment in time?
2: Yes, they certainly have a window into Japanese intentions and capabilities, which is always useful in a time of war. And they, you know, sometimes they can't translate a whole message, but there are other forms of intelligence coming in that can corroborate parts of messages or they can translate just enough of a message to be able to have an educated guess, there's definitely an open window that they can peer through and make sense of intentions and capabilities of what Imperial Japan is is planning and is actually capable of doing.
1: I'm always fascinated about the decoding that's taken place, the secret messages that are being sent, and the cryptanalysts and what they're working on this period in time. Can you tell us about who specifically was hired and working for the US Navy to decode these messages?
2: Yes, certainly. So, the big name at Station Hypo in Hawaii is Commander Joseph Rochefort, who is the officer in charge of what they call comment which is communications intelligence at Hypo. And he's kind of an eccentric character. He's famous for walking around in his slippers and his kind of dressing gown. That's what we would call it in Britain. And kind of did his own thing, was on his own schedule, but was a deeply intelligent man, very, very capable when it came to communications intelligence. And then Lieutenant Commander Edwin T. Layton, who was the Pacific Fleet Staff Intelligence Officer who worked closely with Rochefort. And the two of them, they're the kind of big names that we know, if we know, because often with intelligence history, you know, if Intel is done right, it kind of remains in the shadows and we don't know about it. So there's kind of this pattern in history of us only knowing about intelligence contributions when things went wrong, something like Pearl Harbor, for instance. But we do know about Joe Rochefort and Edwin Layton, and their kind of breakthrough at Midway in communications Intel. And they had a team. Intelligence is never just individuals, and it's wrong to think of it that way. There is always a team. If you think of Intel as a machine, you need a lot of cogs and parts for that machine to keep running, and intelligence is exactly the same. You need the people. Physically listening to the communications, the people writing down what they're hearing, the people who are capable of translating that out of Japanese and getting Japanese into Morse code is no mean feat. So there's all these people with these incredible skills, highly trained mathematicians, sometimes physicists, people who can maintain the equipment. There's a vast team behind this effort and it's Rochefort and Leighton that we tend to know about.
1: Well, you've got to tell us some more about this team. Who's it made up of? Do we get to find out more about this more forgotten aspect of the intelligence?
2: Yes. And people working in intelligence are always forgotten, sadly. And there are exceptions to that. We know about Alan Turing and the people at Bletchley Park. We know they were there, but often they're these kind of faceless shadows that we associate with what went on at Bletchley. And I think that hypo is exactly the same. It's not a huge intelligence station. There are a number of people working there, but not masses. And then obviously, FreeMel is working in Australia as well. And a lot of what they're doing is complementing each other's work. And they're in constant communication with what was known as OP20G in Washington, D.C., where there were thousands of people working. So there is a network between the Pacific and Washington, D.C. and Australia and a couple of other places where there are a combined total of thousands of people. And there are men and women involved in this effort. And that's another thing that's not commonly known, that there are actually men and women involved in this effort. And many of them, we will never know their names due to issues with intelligence records. Some of them we do, thank goodness, because they left oral histories. People thought to interview them. So we can kind of read about who they were and what they did. But it was a vast range of people, many of them with college backgrounds, university backgrounds in the States, because obviously working in intelligence, you needed certain skills. And a lot of that had to do with maths or languages, linguistic ability, code breaking. When you look for code breakers, you look for things you might not necessarily think of. So musicians, Reading music is a kind of code and puzzles. Recruitment for these people would ask about, do you like doing puzzles? Are you good at uh, crosswords and things like that? So they're highly intelligent people from um, college backgrounds, most of them, university backgrounds. Many of them with naval backgrounds. Many of them are already in the military. Others have been inducted into the military because then they are placed under military secrecy. So they can't speak about what they're doing. So this really high level of secrecy demands a certain sort of person. And they have to be sure that these people are secret keepers because this information is vitally important to the course of the war.
1: So poor rolls folk like me wouldn't have been hired. Instead, you needed these elite upper classes who had had this excellent education, including through music and languages and everything you could possibly think of, probably from Ivy League institutions who were bought in to really try and have a transformative effect on, on keeping up with the Japanese codes. Is, is that fair? I mean, that's what it was like at Bletchley, wasn't it?
2: It is to some degree. You did get anomalies. So, you know, if people are at Ivy League universities or very highfalutin universities on scholarships, for instance, but they're actually from different socioeconomic backgrounds, that did happen at Bletchley and at Hypo and op20g so overwhelmingly they are educated but educated doesn't always follow with upper class so it's quite interesting if you socially speaking social history break down class issues who was there there are anomalies but mostly overwhelmingly very very intelligent
1: and capable people i have no doubts about it at all i'm keen to hear just how much of an effect they had on the battle. So take a step by step. They process this information. You're seeing the movements of the Japanese fleet. Where does this information get sent to?
2: So the information, Japanese communications themselves are intercepted at interception stations that have specialist equipment. They're usually coastal because it helps with range, but not always. So you have people placed in listening stations who have the equipment that they need to pick up conversations, between Japanese Navy men or, you know, Army, whoever it is they're specifically listening in on at that moment. And obviously at Hypo, they're very concerned about what the Imperial Japanese Navy is up to. So they will be listening to ships and if they can pick up communications between commanding officers, wherever they might be, sometimes afloat. And that information is recorded. It's then sent through a process. So intelligence collection and analysis and and processing, there's so much process involved. And that's why you have all these people with different skills. So you have a person on a listening station is perfectly capable of manning equipment that's quite complicated to use, but they may have no knowledge whatsoever of the Japanese language. So this then has to go through processing. And you often have an entire team on a site like at Bletchley Park. You had whole teams, but they were very compartmentalised. And the reason for that was the less you knew, the less you could give away by accident or on purpose. So keeping the different skills compartmentalised. So you have listeners and then you have translators and then you have processors, maybe they're filterers. Sometimes if a process known as traffic analysis is carried out, um, that might mean that you can't read the actual contents of the message, but you have all this information on where it came from and who transmitted it. And therefore, what might it mean? You can kind of speculate. And traffic analysis often involved triangulation or the use of radar equipment, radio direction finding, which the Americans dubbed radar. And that, again, is specialist work. And the information that you get from traffic analysis might come in in what we call raw data form, which makes zero sense to someone who doesn't have the scientific training to know what it means. So that information has to be passed to a team that does know what to do with it. They can turn it into usable, clean language information. So you've got all these kind of specialist teams carrying out collection, processing, analysis. Once you have the information, what does it mean? It's not enough just to be able to read it. You have to be able to interpret it. What does it mean? What could it mean? Does it marry up with anything other forms of intel have brought in? Can it corroborate? Can it disprove? So actually analysing the information itself. And then you've got the disseminators. So often it's tempting to look at these, these teams and look at the people manning the telephones or the teleprinter lines and go, well, they're just administration. They're not really important. And that's the big reason why women have gone sort of unnoticed, in intelligence is because it doesn't look like what they're doing is important they're not mathematicians they're not cracking codes they're passing that information to a commander maybe they're passing it to nimitz or to macarthur but if M- nimitz and macarthur don't have that information that information is entirely useless so the dissemination teams are a critical part of this process So there are these teams spread out, compartmentalised, but all working together in this kind of vital overall process that will get this information from a Japanese conversation that makes no sense because it's encoded and it's information that needs to be analysed to the point where someone like Nimitz or MacArthur can act on it in a military sense. And this is a big job for this team to do.
1: That is the biggest understatement I've heard on this podcast this year, Sarah. A big job, it sounds like a one-million-piece jigsaw puzzle that you have to complete without having the box with the picture on and whilst wearing a blindfold. And then, hopefully, you get to the right picture at the end of it.
0: Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand-new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists. And uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence. Slavery to civil rights. The gold rush to the space race. I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices So how much of an impact does this information have on the Battle of Midway? Do you have like teams in Pearl Harbour that are collating all of this and then positioning it on maps to show where the Japanese Navy is moving? I mean, you must have almost an hour-by-hour play of where the fleet are moving and then the US fleet ready for this, well, it's almost a surprise attack, isn't it?
2: Yes, the Americans are going to play the Japanese at their own game. So, you know, Pearl Harbor is this surprise attack that's not expected, though if we look into the intelligence behind that, that's a whole different conversation to have another day. Maybe they should have expected it a bit more than they did, but Midway is the other thing entirely. So by mid-1942, American intelligence in relation to Japan is going quite well, so they are able to um, read Japanese naval communications. The Japanese are using a code called JN25, which is notoriously difficult, but they have made massive inroads and they are able to glean information from the Imperial Japanese Navy's operations to the point where they know most of the time locations where they're operating, their order of battle a lot of the time, And it's predicted operations, their their actions that they're likely to carry out. Sometimes they don't have all the details. Most of the time they have enough to work with. And certainly by midway they have enough. So you have this famous water message. And this is where Rochefort and Leighton are fairly sure of some information. But there is some hesitancy. Nimitz is hesitant at this point to really trust intelligence. It hasn't come into its own as a a trusted part of military operations yet. And Midway is going to change that. So Rochefort and Layton are fairly sure that the Japanese are talking about attacking Midway. And there's this indicator that comes up a lot. It's the two letters AF. AF begins to appear in decoded messages. Some of these messages are only partially decoded, but AF is there. And Rochefort and Leighton, they are fairly sure that AF is Midway. But they need to be surer. Military commanders often want intelligence officers to be absolutely sure. They don't want speculation. They want fact. So there's this plan to try and get the Japanese to confirm that AF is Midway. And that's exactly what they do. The base at Midway, the American base at Midway, puts out a communications message to say that they are short of fresh water. And shortly after that, the Japanese transmit a message saying that AF is short of fresh water. So you have your confirmation there that AF is Midway, as well as having the location. And they know that an attack is coming. They know this because the Japanese are sending out a massive amount of communications. And that happens before an intended operation. You always get this kind of huge amount of radio traffic before something big is about to go down. And there is this increase in communications traffic, and now there's confirmation that AF is midway. So things are pointing to a Japanese attack on midway, which they intend to be a surprise. And then there is other intelligence coming in to confirm the date. So they have a confirmed date as June 4th or 5th. And other details like the intended order of battle, the fact that there's going to probably be four aircraft carriers there, and is absolutely critical, and it's not hard to see why it's so critical, this information for the US specifically to have in dealing with the Imperial Japanese Navy. So they can set a trap for the Japanese who had intended to set a trap for them, surprising their surprises, which is really going to be key in how the battle plays out.
1: I mean, it's the perfect situation you want to find yourself in. It's uh, a kind of classic double bluff situation. And we also know how the Japanese are going to deploy their attacks now. It's a a bit, in this situation, a bit like Pearl Harbor, sending out the aircraft from the aircraft carriers, and there'll be a, a point that they have to go back and rearm and refuel. And it's here that the battle begins. So Sarah, take us to that early morning on June 4th, 1942, 80 years ago. How did the Battle of Midway play out?
2: Luckily for the Americans, and there was a certain element of luck involved, it played out uh, pretty much how they wanted it to. So they are able, so the Japanese, they think they're going to lie in wait for the Americans off the coast of Midway. So the plan is to attack the base on Midway and then the Americans will obviously respond. They will come to defend their base where the Japanese are lying in wait off the coast of the island and they can then take out the American defenders, so the Americans are going to play the Japanese at their own game, they are also waiting off the coast of the island. The Japanese have brought with them four aircraft carriers, and we know how critical aircraft carriers are in the Pacific Naval War, in the Second World War. They've brought Akagi, Kaga, Soryu and Hiryu. So they have a total of around 230 embarked aircraft, which is quite a few as well as support and escort vessels. And the US carriers are also lurking, and neither side at the moment can see each other, as is the nature of carrier warfare. So the US brings its three carriers, Enterprise Hornet and Yorktown, with about 200, again, about 230 aircraft afloat. So we have a period of waiting, and then the attack takes place. The Japanese launch their aircraft from their carriers, and they attack the base on midway. And there's a point where they're pretty satisfied with their work and they're, they're going to go back to their aircraft carriers and refuel. And this is the point at which the US deploys devastator torpedo bombers and dauntless dive bombers from their carriers to then attack the Japanese fleet while they're refueling. So the three aircraft carriers of the Japanese four that are hit, the Akagi, the Kaga and the Soryu, are badly damaged set on fire and pretty much abandoned, have to be abandoned because the hits are good. They're good hits.
1: I mean, that's incredible, isn't it, Sarah? So you've got the devastators and the Dauntless dive bombers that are heading in there and just scoring direct hits, largely, I guess, because the Japanese are too busy preparing for the return of their aircraft. You have to clear the decks. You have to make sure everyone's ready for these aircraft to land, refuel, and almost like a pit stop gets sent back out. And while they're getting ready for that, they're not getting ready for an incoming attack.
2: Absolutely. And the courage of the American pilots here is key. The courage and the skill. The dive bombers, it's notoriously difficult in times of war to to score direct hits on sometimes moving targets at sea. And it's testament to their skill and their courage, how well they do at this point to take out three of four, aircraft carriers, as quickly as they do, is just amazing. And the element of surprise is key. And intelligence has given them that element of surprise, which the Japanese don't know and don't expect.
1: So the last remaining Japanese aircraft carrier, does it manage to respond with attacks or does it turn about and, and flee as quickly as possible?
2: So here you, the last carrier does fight back, it launches aircraft, and some of those aircraft do badly damage the USS Yorktown, one of the American carriers, but it remains afloat. It's unfortunately sunk a few days later by a submarine, but during the battle itself, it's not sunk, it's just badly damaged. But it's temporary, because the afternoon of the 4th, one of Yorktown's scout planes actually spots the Hiryu, and dive bombers are able to take off from the deck of the Enterprise and damage the Hiryu beyond repair. It cannot, at that point, launch aircraft. So the Japanese are left as sitting ducks with no ability to launch aircraft, and Hiryu then sinks. So they're, all four of their carriers are destroyed and sunk.
1: Well, come on. Is here, here is where you see that intelligence paying off. Here is where absolutely. the rubber meets the tarmac, because you can see clearly, without all that hard work, all of this would have been impossible. And the fact that that final Japanese aircraft carrier was able to continue to fight and to cause such damage to Yorktown shows you just how formidable they would have been if all four were able to operate as planned. What were the ultimate and final losses for the Japanese? I mean, it, it must have been completely disproportionate compared to the amount of losses the US suffered.
2: The Imperial Japanese Navy lost all four of the carriers that they sent to Midway, which is hugely significant because up to this point, the carriers are really what have been the dangerous element in the naval war in the Pacific. I mean, look at Pearl Harbor, you know, the carriers enabled them to carry out this new kind of warfare and to have all four of them gone in one attack is just devastating for the IJN. They also not to be underplayed they also lost a hundred trained pilots over a hundred and pilots take time to train and to get to the kind of competency level where they can carry out the attacks that they've been carrying out so to lose a hundred of your pilots which is it's not far off of half the pilots that were sent is also incredibly significant and not good for the Japanese and it does derail their plans for future offenses in the Pacific and it has to postpone plans to take areas that it had intended to take, like Fiji and Samoa, has to kind of take its eyes off of those targets because of this loss of, of carriers and pilots. And the balance of sea power changes that day. It shifts in the Pacific and the Japanese ultimately, the Imperial Japanese Navy will not recover from it. So this is incredibly significant.
1: So this is it's fair to say it's a critical US victory that's stopping that growth of japan in the pacific for the first time in the war you know can we say that this is truly a turning point at the battle of midway that is down to all those forgotten aspects of the forgotten intelligence analysts that have been working away trying to ensure this victory. It's down to them. This is the turning point of the war. It
2: absolutely is. It actually does track back to the Battle of the Coral Sea before Midway, which is really the the very first time that you see intelligence having that kind of an effect, but it is magnified at Midway. So you see this kind of possibility that intelligence might be able to, to shift the tides in the war at Coral Sea and then at Midway it is really cemented and by this point Nimitz is sold on intelligence and short and because of what happens at Midway it becomes a court-martial offence to ignore intelligence that you are given from the kinds of people like Rochefort and and Leighton that are collecting it after Midway. It's recognised as being that critical to the war effort. Uh, So yes, definitely this hidden work in back rooms by people whose faces we don't recognise and whose names we don't know is absolutely crucial to the the changes in the balance of power that then go on to ultimately affect the outcome of the war.
1: And of course, we have many years left to go in the war. Let's just make that clear. We have the years-long series of island-hopping invasions and then even larger naval battles then Midway, and the loss of hundreds of thousands of lives. But, you know, it was looking bleak in 1942. And it's at this point, we can safely say there is a turning point that may have even shortened the war. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. Tell us, where can we read more about your work on this topic?
2: Well, I have a book under publication right now specifically looking at the involvement of women in this effort because there were a number of them um involved behind the scenes and because because women were not allowed in the navy at this point to serve on ships anyway. It's often assumed that they didn't have anything to do with the battle of Midway but that's quite wrong and there were a number of women in both Washington D.C. and Hawaii who were directly involved behind the scenes with Midway and You can read about them in a book that I have coming out, um, I believe, in 2024, on the contributions of women to the kind of Hawaiian war effort, essentially, American women there.
1: Well, that's amazing. We will look out for that. And of course, when it comes to be published, we'll get you back on the Warfare podcast. Sarah, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening, but before you go, I've got a very exciting special offer for Warfare listeners. Over on History Hit TV, we're building the world's best history channel on demand, and we want to share it with you. When you sign up for a monthly subscription using the code WARFARE, you'll get two things. You'll get two weeks free, followed by your first three months with 50% off. We release two exclusive new documentaries every week, including my new series, Traces of War. And you'll get access to every episode of our ever-growing podcast network, ad-free, so you can listen to Warfare without the interruptions, but also to all our shows, like Matt and Cat on Gone Medieval, or Tristan on The Ancients. To sign up, just follow the link in the show notes.